In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Hunter Mulcair. Today we're going to be talking about COVID anxiety again. In our first two episodes of the COVID series, we had a look at the broad issues that impact everyone, the kind of day-to-day stresses that we're all under. The first episode looked at anxiety and worry about COVID and about how to talk to your friends and family. In our second episode, we looked at the flow on effects, how it's impacting our home lives, our work, how it is that we cope with feeling isolated and just getting through day to day. But today we wanted to talk to someone who's researching the clinical levels of anxiety about COVID. And so before Hunter introduces our guest, I just want to do the same thing that we do every episode where we thank you for listening to the show and we ask you whether you could rate and review us on iTunes. We absolutely love hearing from you guys and hearing what it is that you enjoy about the show and any time that you give us Uh, stars then that helps us go further up in the charts and helps people find us you can also contact us and let us know what you think of the show or ask us questions that's at two shrinks pod on twitter or you can email us at two shrinks pod at gmail.com or you can go to our website two shrinks pod.com we also have some covid related resources on there at the moment so check it out if you're looking for some help around mental health stuff keeping kids occupied beating boredom that kind of stuff yeah we put a link up on the uh, front of the page, uh, yes. coping with COVID or something creative. That like is that. correct. So shall you introduce our guest? Yeah, we, we are extremely excited. We, we've got our first international guest on the show. His name is Associate Professor Sherman Lee. He's from Christopher Newport University in Virginia in the United States. He seems to be an underachiever. He's only got degrees in educational counseling and organizational <laughs> psychology. His research spans anxiety, grief, personality and religion. And we first came across his work when we looked at the Dark Triad and then also in the Dark Tetrad episodes. And he has developed two scales, the Coronavirus Anxiety Scale and the Obsession with COVID-19 Scale. And he's recently authored some papers validating these scales. And so we were very excited to talk to someone conducting research in real time about a current problem that's affecting everyone, Mm. I think. So welcome to the show, Sherman. Thank you for having me, both of you, and the guests, and everyone who's listening. <laughs> um, yeah, no, thanks so much for making this time. Perhaps a good place to start would be, tell us about the two scales you developed. Okay. So, as we all know, we're experiencing fear and anxiety. I experienced it a lot earlier than my colleagues, actually, because of listened to world news and the developments of the COVID, and I started to feel that anxiety, the fear... Um, listening to some of the experts talking about, you know, what it's possibly going to affect the world. Mm -hmm. And so I anticipated it. And, uh, you know, being a researcher and uh, thinking about what would possibly be the big need, I thought I have an expertise in measurement. I probably ought to think about and research more about my own feelings and hopefully anticipate that there's going to be other people like me mm-hmm. who are going to feel 
afraid and uh, anxious, especially if what the experts are predicting is going to happen, which is happening now. Again, I'm talking in, in different tenses because I'm thinking back in February. And so I had to work fast to read up on the uh, research on previous studies on infectious disease and psychology, think about what the current issues, because every every disease has a context, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I went through the same process of building a test that I usually do. I think about a bunch of domains, right, that an emotion can tap, like your thinking, your feeling, your motivation, your biology. Mm -hmm. Now, when you put together a psychological test, you don't know what necessarily is going to be the hit. What are the symptoms that are going to cohere together, that stick together, and that would be predictive of a person who's experiencing problems, trouble. So although all these symptoms that I thought of in the beginning, people probably experience, only a handful are going to be uh, signs, right? Clues that uh, someone may be having a harder time and may need mental health intervention. Mm -hmm. So I started this process, and I'm in an undergraduate, primarily undergraduate institution. So I had my students, and I told them, okay, we have an opportunity. I anticipate this problem. Let's work on it. So I put those things together. We got our data, which we used online services from Amazon. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar. We have a workforce, the MTurk, it's called. And I'm able to study people from different regions of the U.S. And the first sample I looked at was 775 people who reported some level of anxiety. So my goal here was to derive the more clinical sides from everyone that has, you know, a little to a lot, right? Again, people say, why didn't you hit the entire range? Well, my rationale is this. You don't go to a hospital or a doctor or go see a med until you know or you feel like something's wrong, right? Mm. And, and the doctor's job, the professional's job is often to discern whether you really have a particular problem or not, right? And, and similarly, I didn't feel it necessary to go look at a bunch of people who don't even know what I'm talking about, right? Because it's kind of early in the stage in the US at least. And so I stuck to this population and then from this population, I was able to discern, okay, there's a chunk of you among all of us and I put myself in there, that has some fear and anxiety, but there are some of you that are dysfunctional. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, I guess the way I look at that is that, you know, there's a a range of anxiety and what it sort of strikes me from what you're looking at is like you're looking at a relatively standard, normal group of people who are reporting some anxiety and you're trying to figure out, all right, well, so which ones out of this group have significant COVID anxiety, significant anxiety about this problem. Is that, is that sort of a good way of summarizing that? That's actually the way. In fact, anytime I do another interview, I'll bring you along. <laughs> <laughs> you can break down what I said in probably in that one succinct sentence uh, that I'll ramble on for five minutes. But yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's exactly what it's it is. The, the benefit of being a clinician, I think. Mm. You, we you, do a lot of summarizing. <laughs> a lot of summarizing. <laughs> So uh, where are we? Uh, I I derived those two scales that we're going to talk about in a few minutes Mm -hmm. uh, from that sample. Okay. You got the COVID virus anxiety scale. Let's start with that one. Tell us what's that one about. Okay. So that was the first one I worked on because the, the symptoms that seem to explain this big group of symptoms that I threw down, again, hitting different domains from thoughts to behaviors 
to motivation. This cluster just stood out and explained everything. And if you look at them, and we'll go through them each, they're all physiological expressions, right? Mm. And it makes sense that those would be the telltale signs of a problem because when you are really feeling anything, particularly fear and anxiety, your body tells you in a dramatic way. So those five symptoms we can go through if, if you want to. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I can tell you a little bit about those implications. But those five, if you experience a certain level of those things, I was able to find the line mm-hmm. that kind of divides people who probably, and I say probably because these are all statistical, probably have dysfunction and probably need some kind of intervention. Yep. So the first one felt dizzy, lightheaded or faint when I read or listened to news about the coronavirus. Yes. And so let's talk about how we assess these things. Yep. We look at it from a two week mark, much like they do with depression inventories, anxiety mm-hmm. inventories to find a trend. And out of a zero and a four point scale, we're looking at the frequency of these experiences, right? Within the two week time frame. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we come up with a total score and the total score will give us a summary of those experiences. So let's go with the first one, dizziness, lightheaded, and faint. Hunter, what did you get? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> disclosure time. Yeah, disclosure time. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, like any good clinician, you got to do questionnaires on yourself. So... <laughs> Uh, no, I got a zero. Uh, I don't think I've felt that in the last two weeks. I don't think I've felt that at all. Amy? Uh, yeah, zero for that one <laughs> as well. Although we were talking about um, when we were preparing for this interview and both of us thought that we would have had entirely different scores a couple of weeks ago than we do now. And probably a couple of weeks ago, I probably would have been a one on that one. So rare, less than a day or two, but I definitely had it once or twice. So you had a reaction probably early on. Yeah. Yeah. This is an important point I want to make about this. Would you say both of you say you have some level of of anxiety about coronavirus now, right now? Uh, I reckon I do. Mine's, but I would say mine's definitely subsided. Yeah. Somewhat. Okay. Yeah. So again, this is why this these kind of tests are important. That level of dizziness Mm. is extreme, right? Anytime you see something that scares you. Yeah. That makes you so apprehensive that your breathing pattern changes to the point for which you don't get enough oxygen in your head. You start hyperventilating, right? Yeah. That's how we often feel dizzy and woozy. If you think about times in your life, and I can think about traumatic times for me, hmm. uh, especially as a youth. I remember when I, when I broke my PCL ligament and, uh, the, and I was a skateboarder. And the doctor told me with, in front of my father that yeah, he, he won't skateboard again. And, mm. you know, as a high school kid, I, I skateboarded the whole time, thought I was going to be a professional one day, right? Yeah. yeah, high school kid. And that was the first time when someone said something that shattered my world. And I remember looking at him and the whole room started to close in, yeah. right? Mm. It was so, so scary to think that the very thing I love so much you is gone, yeah. right? So I often think about, Wow, one of the times I feel so dizzy when I heard about something or or got exposed to it. Because again, the item is written specific to coronavirus. Mm. And again, for those people who are clinical, right? Any kind of trigger of that, the news, someone talking about it, and then we have to be sensitive about that too. Yeah. Is I often have to think about who am I talking to because I'm the stimulus. And if it is that 
traumatic to them. Yeah. They will feel, they will start to hyperventilate. And if they have panic attacks and related things, it, it will start the spiral. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, can, so yeah, the dizziness is important. Yeah, yeah I, I, can, I can just think about that. Like as a clinician, I've only had a few instances of doing some work with someone and inadvertently triggering that and that they forever etched in my memory as mm. a clinician of thinking, oh, wow, I didn't, that was not a good situation and, and didn't, you know, it was unexpected. So, mm. yeah, I guess the point that you're saying is if someone's responding to that with that level of reaction, that's that's a very extreme mm. thing. Yeah. The next item, which is about trouble falling asleep or staying asleep because I was thinking about the virus, mm. I marked the several days in the last two weeks. What about for you, Amy? Yeah, same for me and... I'd say that it's in the previous chunk of time, it would have been a little bit more, more than seven yeah. days. Yeah. yeah. I would certainly say that sleeplessness is a much lower bar uh, mm. in terms of anxiety for people. It's got a bit of a different flavor to it as well, yeah. often. Yes. It's often comes from that ruminating aspect to it, more so than that physiological shock almost reaction yeah, yeah. Of, of dizziness. Yeah, so that ruminating that's playing on your mind, thinking yeah. about something, thinking about, thinking about, thinking yeah. about it in that kind of way. Yes, and we're going to get to that one because that was that second scale really hits that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. That, that issue. And, and this is important. So I'm going to take a sidebar because we're, we're talking about mental health screeners now, okay? And just so audience members understand the difference. These are diagnostic tests, which are very specific and precise to help you figure out what exactly is the problem. Mm -hmm. As you can see, and we're going to go through all these, all of these things are applicable to many different disorders. And so they're not designed to be very specific as screeners are designed to go, I think you probably have a problem. And I think we ought to bring you in and give you further evaluation mm -hmm. so uh, we can give you the right treatment. So I want to want everyone to know that even though I'm studying the construct or the topic of coronavirus anxiety, I'm not looking at it as a specific disorder or yeah. diagnostic mm. test. This is, this is kind of signs that you are having problems that are applicable. Again, we can go through all the different disorders where, you know, sleeping is involved, right? Mm. I mean, yeah. sleeping is involved in depression, PTSD, GAD, you know, it's a, it's a very common one. But I just want to make sure I put that point across. Yeah, yeah sure. I mean, it's, it's like everyone's getting their temperature checked at the moment. Mm. Now, just because you've got a high temperature doesn't mean you've got corona. No. It could just be, or it could be a whole lot of other things, right? Yeah. So, and I, I think we as clinicians use questionnaires and mental health screeners like these tools to suss out, all right, well, what's where do we need to go in terms mm. of clinical interview? And it means that you're not asking a whole bunch of questions that are useless or aren't to do with the problem that the person has. Yeah. And, and so it's usually got some sort of purpose like that of narrowing it in. And also like if you're a individual who are listening and you want to test yourself on these scales, my, my interpretation of them is you would read it and you would look at it and you kind of go, oh, hang on, is my score high or is mm. it not high? If it's high, then maybe I need to go talk, talk to somebody about it. Yeah. Would, would that be a, is that how you would suggest people look at it? I would, but I'm very cautious, and I was speaking to a test uh, developer in Singapore who wanted actually, who's working on taking my ideas and putting on putting them on apps, which again is wonderful, wonderful technology. I'd love to support it. The problem I have is we have gotten so a little bit too much, in my opinion, towards self-helping ourselves, and when you have uh, clinical levels of problems, you don't see things necessarily objectively. Hmm. And so my fear is I want to make sure that people have other people 
connected to them as they perceive things. And again, you know, fear and anxiety bends your perceptions. It, it, it takes facts and makes them a lot more exaggerated, right, mm. than they need to be. So I'm open to, but with caution, people looking at that. But again, and, and maybe you guys can speak to this, how we have become such a self-help culture to the point that uh, we don't think we need anyone anymore. And we're losing that interconnectedness that's important, particularly for mental health. Maybe you want to speak on that before we... Yeah, it's an interesting one because it's that fine line, isn't it, between being able to do some basic things to look after yourself and bring those levels down and knowing when it is that you need to get help. And people have all different perceptions about when that needs to happen and all different ideas about who goes to therapy or when it's time to go to therapy or whether it's okay. It's, it's such a complex thing. And then that's before you even add in all of the other layers around service access and things like that. So it's, yeah, it's absolutely huge. Yeah. I mean, my experience with, they do a lot of distress screening in oncology. And so I work as a psychologist in cancer, in cancer treatment. And just because someone scores high on a distress scale, the distress thermometer, that not everybody is accepting of the fact that they need help. Mm. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I mean, it can cut both ways, but I mean, yeah. I'm also thinking about some of my clients who are particularly anxious at baseline and some might read these items and immediately jump to the high high end of the scale going oh hang on a minute maybe I have been like that and I haven't realized (laughs) so Mm -hmm. it's measuring things is a complex complex one what about the third item on that list about feeling paralyzed or frozen when I thought about or was exposed to information about the coronavirus yes this is a very important item and again for you mental health professionals you'll know that it's a telltale sign of particular uh, pathology so Tell me how you scored it, and then we can talk about that. Yeah, I got a zero. Yeah, zero for me too. And most people, again, this is one of those dividing lines. The technical term for that is tonic immobility. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes we talk about fight and flight mm-hmm. as a reaction, but we often disregard fear, uh, freezing. Yeah. And from the technical point of view, that's an awesome, acceptable reaction when those fighting or fleeing reactions don't work. What mm-hmm. happens is that it's called the terminal defensive behavior. So you see this with animals. They instinctively don't believe they can go anywhere. And so their body gives way, which yeah. makes sense because you don't want the predator to see you. You can't move. You, you just freeze. And so we see this with trauma, particularly uh, sexual abuse survivors, right? Um, mm-hmm. They're in a situation. They're in physical harm. They, they can't do anything. They might have fought and tried, but now the body has to give way and, and the muscles start to lose their feeling, right? And they often report feeling paralyzed. And so that is a good sign that you are really experiencing a heightened level of, of fear. Have you guys watched those YouTube videos where they put the, where people go on this ride that is like a slingshot and it shoots people and they give you that view where you can see their faces and these individuals... They scream, and it, it's so intense as they're going up that you'll see the ones where they pass out. No. Mid-ride. That, that is oh. definitely the kind of video I would not watch. I think no. I'd have to say. <laughs> I mean, the the closest thing I've seen to that where it's kind of showing someone moving through those phases, like those survival instincts, are the still face experiments with babies where they move their 
mother is instructed to keep her face blank no matter what they do and they move through a whole bunch of different things where they try and engage with her and then they crack it and you know scream and whatever and then they freeze and then they dissociate and then the mother responds again and they're quite confronting to watch it's like it hits that gut reaction yeah um, primal yeah primal kind of thing yeah yes yeah so again and, and the one thing about the screener, and I'll go on the other end of it, I think each one of these is uh, clinically useful. Because if you're dealing with someone with, with tonic immobility issues, right, they, they may have uh, pre-existing issues with trauma. Mm. And so I think knowing, because as you said zero, I said zero, but I've experienced tonic immobility when I've, a few times when I've been extremely frightened. Mm. I mean, just terrified. I felt my knees right? And my legs feel like cement. Mm. So um, even though these are screener items, I think, especially if you go through this with a mental health professional, there also can be clues for you in terms of some of the issues that can be connected. And let me take a back step to the sleep disturbances. One of the issues about looking at this is we're talking about an infectious disease. And one of the big risk factors of contracting that is individuals who don't get enough rest. Hmm. Your immune system is compromised. If you don't rest enough, you will be susceptible. And I don't know if you've ever had that. Your body's fatigued, didn't have enough time to heal itself and recover. And then you go and expose yourself to all of these germs and and pathogens. And Hmm. uh, sure enough, you get sick quick. So I think it's also important for us to look at how the quality of their care, particularly the amount of sleep and quality of sleep. So that's another uh, item. Yeah, I think definitely one of the things that can happen for people at this time is they get anxious, don't sleep, poor sleep. And then because of that, you are, like you were saying, run down and you just pick up a normal cold or you pick Mm -hmm. up a normal, the the normal flu, right? And and then that breeds more anxiety because you're, oh my God, I'm coughing. What should I be doing? Mm. Or I can't go to work because work doesn't let you go to work with a cough or a cold, you know, that kind of thing. So it, it is sort of interesting. I always think about sort of the flow on effects of this kind of stuff. The, the next one is not a reaction I ever have <laughs> to anxiety, which is I lost interest in eating when I thought about or exposed information about Corona. I am not one of those people. I, I'm the opposite in the scale. So, See, whereas, whereas this is me to an absolute T, the yeah. tiniest bit of stress and I completely forget to eat. So a couple of weeks ago, it, it would have been nearly every day. So it would have been a four. Probably now... So would you be like more than... Yeah, yeah, right. It's, like it's more like a one or a two these days but it's certainly for me it's one that I know that I'm stressed when I get to 11 o'clock at night and go why am I why am I feeling a bit kind of lightheaded and kind of go oh that's right I forgot to eat today yeah it's so, actually and, yeah. And, and listeners to this show will have heard me talk about people being hangry yeah and you know if, you, if you're uh, if you are anxious and you are unhappy and moody mm. have some food yeah and then reassess your mood state and, and let me tell you i've i've worked with a number of people where the problem was that they weren't having breakfast mm. it wasn't their complicated problems in their personal life it was the like, base physiological they, needs as soon as they got that sorted they, their mood problems went away <laughs> <laughs> glad we're talking about that because the second one pairs with this nausea stomach mm. problems yeah did you have any of that no no uh well maybe stomach problems but not nausea yeah probably a well, little again yeah was it tied to exposure to information? So you watch the news, you listen to the news, and you're like, you just got 
sick to your stomach. You felt like you wanted to vomit. Because remember now, I'm not asking about free-floating experiences. When you're afraid of something or anxious about something and it gets triggered, you know that connection. Yeah, so right. remember, like, it has to be in concert with the mm-hmm. coronavirus. Yeah, so you're talking about like this like, acute reaction to it. No, I wouldn't say that so much. No. Definitely not in the last two weeks. I reckon I would have once when mm. I heard some news in the previous two weeks. Yeah, I reckon so, that yeah, kind of stomach so, dropping, the, the, not nauseous, but that pit of the stomach. Yeah. yeah. Oh, shit kind of feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think what's interesting about this scale is that I haven't used it with my clients yet, although there's one today that I considered using it with, and we're going to have a bit more of a discussion next week about it. But it does open up some areas to talk about clinically and some things to to tease apart to break down some of that anxiety as well. Because I think for a lot of people, it's quite hard to figure out exactly what it is that they're anxious about. And yeah, it's quite useful to break it down a bit. So, so that's the scale. And what have you found that relates to people who score highly on this scale? I think, you know, that's really something that we as clinicians and as individuals are quite interested in knowing. Yes, yes, definitely. And that's a part of the process of, for me to prove to the world that it's has any utility, right? It has (laughs) to be related to dysfunction. And if it is truly fear and anxiety, you know that it permeates your life. So I had to make sure I kind of looked at different pockets. And so, of course, it's related to what we call functional impairment. So you're not able to live normal life. You're not able to interact with the people that are important to you. You're not able to do your work. This thing is highly correlated with impairment. So that's the big number one thing that we ground it to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, diagnostically, that's one of the cutting lines, right, between uh, – anxiety that we have and then someone who needs medication is it being dysfunctional in terms of living we see it highly correlated with alcohol and drug coping Mm -hmm. and we know at least in the u.s there was a report that came out uh, a few weeks ago new prescriptions for anti-anxiety meds went up 30 something percent in that month and that was in the beginning yeah yeah interesting yeah and extreme hopelessness highly correlated with that Again, that's a sign of a lot of bad things. If someone's not just hopeless, but they're extremely hopeless. Mm. An area that I study too is when it starts to permeate your feelings, uh, spiritual feelings and faith. And that's highly correlated with making a connection with God. Yeah, we were quite curious to see that in your paper because it's not something that we would routinely include in mental health research in Australia. And so we did want to ask you about that, about what that idea of a spiritual crisis looks like. And yeah, why it was included in in that mix. Well, that's one area I've studied. One of the signs that someone's not faring well, and uh, this would go uh, into your region, Hunter, when they study people who are terminally ill, is when someone cannot make sense of whatever's happening to them or the world, and you look toward a divine answer, right? You think about God and God's decisions. And when you start to consider whether right or wrong, that God is punishing you or the world or has left you or Mm. the world, those are really strongly correlated with pretty much every other mental health condition because you can't, a person who's pretty desperate. And uh, so it's it's not, um, 
yeah. a moral evaluation of the person, but it's a good sign that they're, they're, they've exhausted a lot of their explanations. Yeah, they're coming up and they're trying to figure stuff out. So I mean, the non-religious way of phrasing that, I think, in the patients that I work with, is, is they say, why me? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, you know, why did I get this cancer? In this case, it would be, you know, why is this COVID crisis happening to us? It's interesting for us because I think religion in Australia is, is just very different. Religiosity mm. in Australia is very different to the United States. So, it was stuck out at us as a, as a curious area. Um, so, was, that's a good answer mm. for us, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, in the US, it's definitely a big part of the culture. What other factors are associated with people who've got this high anxiety or or what factors are sort of predictive of it? One of the things that's big in the U.S. is support for Trump, right? And uh, I don't don't want to go on that tangent on the show. uh, (laughs) Let's don't. don't. (laughs) It's a trigger point, but I had to because he's such a central figure in people's lives in the U.S. particularly. You know that um, stomach drop that we were talking about? <laughs> well, I, I, well, this will be more disturbing to you that the higher the anxiety, and I found this across a few of my studies already, the most anxious people in my samples believe strongly, more strongly than the other people, that Trump is actually doing uh, uh, a good job on dealing <sighs> with this virus. No, really, really, really. This is, and it's consistent. It's one of my consistent variables. Wow. Um, yeah, it's 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 a funny irony, but so, so explain yes. so explain that. So they think he's doing a good job, but they're more anxious about. The, yes, yes, exactly. Does that I, do I they <laughs> think that then? Like I'm I'm trying to sort of work through that in my head about is it about thinking well that this thing must be exceptionally bad if we've got a leader who is managing this well and, and it's still like and this. He's so good that he's managing it and it's so bad. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I know. Well, you know that's sarcasm in case uh, anyone picked that yes. up. Right. <laughs> uh, you, you just listen, just I will point people to our narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah, his episode, Majesty the baby. His yep. Majesty the baby. <laughs> if you would like to know more about this topic, yeah. sorry, continue, oh, Sherman. You hit a nerve. <laughs> I had to ask that because I knew, and this is not my area because it is definitely an area of study, political psychology, all of those things. But I knew that if this thing was really something that manifests, it had to affect your political attitude. And this is one that really rung true. I'll, I'll give it one more piece of academic and then I have to move on past him <laughs> because, again, oh, I, I, yeah. I always uh, – yeah, that's a hot button. Mm. Um, but – one of the phenomenon that the social scientists have found, not just with this, because they found this also with the shooting in Orlando, that the ones who were more fearful were actually the more supportive of Trump and his administration during that time. Hmm. And some scholars call this the conservative shift, that they've seen that people, regardless of political affiliation, uh, during very traumatic things, wars, things like that, yeah. they tend to find more solace with conservative political ideology. And that goes for liberals too. They start to look at that. And again, from a clinical point of view, and I don't want to get too deep in that, it makes sense to me that you want a person who will give you an answer that's black and white Mm. and will tell you what you want. That convinces you that you're safe. Yes, exactly. Well, actually, you took the words that I was going to say. I was going to say, 
when we are under stress, what we look for is black and white answers. Yeah. Because like when you're anxious about something, you are looking for quick processing of information. Yeah. You want to know an answer, yeah. yes or no. And it's the anticipation of not knowing yeah. that's the worst. And, and yeah. so uncertainty is, is a problem when you're anxious. And so you want to know. And, and you find with cancer patients, they want to know hmm. their you know test result or whatever. It's the waiting for the test result. Yeah. Is very, very difficult. Hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Yes. I noticed yes. in one of the papers you talked about that having had a COVID was associated with higher anxiety. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yes, yes, definitely. That's another area that I think it has application. So in several studies that I've done, and they're in different stages of publication. So the, the trend is, is that the, the people who reported that they have been infected, which is a small but significant number, the first sample, I think I had almost 15%. Yes, they definitely scored higher on any of the psychological scales and even obviously uh, my COVID scales. So you could see how not only their state needs to be examined, we really need to take very close attention to their mental state as well. Hmm. Yeah, I was kind of curious to think about a group of people who don't have COVID and what predicts their anxiety versus a group of people who have had COVID or do have COVID and what predicts their anxiety or what's associated with it. What are your thoughts with that? What I hear you moving towards is there are going to be some distinctions, yeah. obviously, mm. on, on what they're going to be concerned about. I think the universal thing is we don't know. And that's the thing. It's deadly. It could harm people we love. One of my fears is harming people unintentionally that I care about that are people I often get in arguments with that uh, one group of people I hang out with about these issues is that they think that my fear is their fears. Mm. And, I, and I often say, no. Actually, I get sick all the time, but it's not a big deal for me. So I'm not really afraid of it, right? Mm. But for me, my fear is that I'm afraid that I'll get my daughter sick and that I'll make my colleagues who are immune compromised in any way sick. So that often weighs more heavenly for me than personal, you know, catching it personally. Because mm. in my crazy head, I thought I caught it a few times already. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, was that where you're going with, Hunter? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I think if I was thinking about if I was going to do a scale of fear of cancer and what would predict that, because I'm always interested in predicting things or, or correlates of that, that whether it would be different for a group of people who don't have cancer versus a group of people who do have cancer. And then I was sort of, tran- my mind was translating that to COVID, if that kind of makes sense. Yes, yeah. And I, and I definitely think the more I hear interviews about people who've had it, they're definitely going to have different concerns. Mm. Uh, one of them is that you hear news about reinfection. Mm. And again, the symptoms themselves, uh, this goes for both groups. Uh, and I have personal experience. I mean, one of them is supposed to, the inability to not breathe, right? You have trouble breathing. And a lot of the people who actually had it, they talk about this coming on suddenly at one o'clock in the morning. Mm. I mean, and if you wake up like I did going, oh, I can't breathe, you know, you, you start to get really concerned about mm. that. And, and then you start to go through your head and you go through the internet, right? You start looking at symptoms. And so, yeah, I, I definitely think, Hunter, you're right. They're going to have different concerns, especially as they get more in different areas of the disease. As you know, it's a long for a lot of people that I look at. Progression isn't like that three-day flu, right, mm-hmm. where you come back from work and 
no one knew the hell you went through for the last three days because it was such a short period of time. I've heard of people thinking they kicked it in the third week. They're calling the ambulance. So it definitely has a different projection. And obviously, with that length of time, will weigh on your mind heavily about mm. you know whether you're going to die, especially not breathing. How scary is that? Thinking you're okay, and then mm. 1 o'clock in the morning, three weeks later, you're calling the ambulance. Which I think it's also a, a tricky one distinguishing you know for people who are anxious about COVID distinguishing some of those symptoms from the physiological symptoms of anxiety as well like it's such a a tricky one to kind of go like am I having trouble breathing because I'm having a panic attack or I'm I'm really anxious or am I having trouble breathing because of a medical issue Mm. it's one of those things where the symptom of the anxiety kind of mirrors the focus of the anxiety yeah definitely i mean amy and i had a long discussion around that in the coping with covid pod Mm. part one that we did if you've not listened to that i mean really the as a clinician we would be looking at what's the pattern so Mm. like have you not been able to breathe all day Mm. or is it just acutely at particular times the latter one would be more indicative of anxiety yeah yeah that that kind of thing no no i was going to say that that was another Important point, Dr. Taylor wrote a very good introduction if you're into the psychology of pandemics. came out last year. Very good introduction to this. And one of the things he does talk about is overrunning our healthcare system, which he anticipated would happen during any kind of uh, pandemic, with hysteria, right? I mean, you hear the symptoms, you listen to the news, you're scared, everyone's racing around, and all of a sudden, you may have it. And Mm. so what do we do when we think we have the, you know... Uh, something that can kill us or kill our family. We got to go to the doctor. But as you know, the medical care system is overrun. Mm. And this is why this is more, this is just as important as to screen individuals for mental health so that we can give people the appropriate resources uh, so that they don't, especially we can go down the whole track of, uh, you know, illness, anxiety disorder, somatic symptom disorder, all those issues, right? Where the old school term hypochondriacs, hypochondriasis, Mm -hmm. uh, those individuals are not uh, known for stopping after you say no. They're going to find and doctor shop and and, and find as much uh, information and utilize a lot of medical resources uh, to find a cure or discover whether they have the illness. Mm. And that's a problem already when we have resources. But if you could think about it on a mass level with hysteria and we don't have resources like we're seeing now. So... It's more uh, very it's vital now for mental health professionals to be in the front line along with, you know, our doctors and our nurses to mm. to screen individuals for this because um, uh, it's getting to that level. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah it's really interesting problem, isn't it? In the Australian situation is was obviously much better in terms of the number of cases than in mm. America. But we certainly saw in the early days of our lockdown that there was a lot of people presenting and there was a lot of anxiety and there was a lot of anxiety about whether we could get a test. And and then that, I would say, my reading of out the news in Australia has that that's, that anxiety has changed, and if mm. anything, and now the testing is ramped up and it's to the point at which I got an email saying asymptomatic people at our workplace can come and get tested, mm. which is... So, it's, but it's, yeah, it's sort of interesting. But also, the, the one caveat I would say with that, Sherman, is that just because someone's a hypochondriac doesn't mean they're not sick. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, just because you're no, paranoid no, no, doesn't no, mean they're not out to get yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, well, no, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up again because 
we went back to the beginning, we talked about self-helping, right? Mm. Yeah. And a lot of people with those illnesses also do in fact have an illness, but it doesn't mean they also don't also have yeah. somatic illness disorder, right? Because they need to be treated medically with medication, but they also need treated psychologically for the fears. I mean, people who, who have COVID, I can only imagine the kind of psychological impact, the trauma, the anxiety they're going to have even when they're done. Mm. Uh, with it. So, um, yes. So you're right. It, it, it doesn't exclude them from having the, uh, the, yeah. the illness. Yeah, definitely. So we're just keeping an eye on the time. So we might uh, keep on pushing forward. So do you want to take us through your second scale? The And it's the obsessional... Hang on. It's the obsessional... Obsessions uh, with... Yeah. <laughs> it's the obsession with COVID-19 scale, the OCS. Yeah, all, why don't we go through that one? All, all, scales, all scales have to have acronyms don't they they do but some of them are are really upsetting like the one that i think is the worst is one that looks in to depression and suicidality and the acronym is the sad persons (laughs) you just go that's that's not okay (laughs) but anyway (laughs) maybe next time sherman you can get a better uh yeah better acronym a catchier yeah (laughs) You know, and, and you talk about narcissism, right? <laughs> That's another area. Um, I could have put Lee on all of these things mm. and, uh, you know, got a little bit more famous with it. But yes, yeah, I try to stay away from something that wasn't too uh, offensive. But at the same time, because it's COVID, I had to play with the words because I didn't want people to confuse the tests. So yeah, um, obsession wasn't really the word, but because clinicians know that this is part of the OCD sequence, mm-hmm. I had to put that in front. It fits, but, yeah. Um, yeah, you want to read so, some of the items so we can get an understanding? Yeah. Maybe, maybe just give me like a one, two sentence summary, a layperson summary for like what's obsessional thinking? Okay. Uh, so like you were saying, obsessional thinking is thinking that you can't necessarily stop. So it's out of control. It's persistent. And it's not just persistent that process is causing you a lot of distress, mm-hmm. right? You don't want to think about it, but yeah. you can't help it. So that's that's it in a nutshell. Okay, cool. So the first item is I had disturbing thoughts that I may have caught the coronavirus. Hunter, have you had that? Uh, I marked I marked when I filled this out this week was like, yeah, less than a day or two in the last two weeks, I reckon. But I, I have actually had the corona test twice so yeah <laughs> so, <it's laughs> so you're in a different category to me who has not had it i reckon in the last i mean the last two weeks probably the same yeah and in the fortnight before probably the same yeah. like that one stayed pretty stable about the second one i had disturbing thoughts that certain people i saw may have the coronavirus no no well i've i've been in sort of a bit of a cocoon either at work or at home so mm. I think the only time I've had that is going to the supermarket and seeing elderly mm-hmm. people coughing into handkerchiefs that clearly have not been washed frequently. But it's, that's that's a concern I have just day to day. It's the ones that, <laughs> it's the ones that pull off the mask to talk to you, mm. or to wipe their face under the mask. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, continue. <laughs> That's it. Uh, I, I could not stop thinking about the coronavirus. I've definitely had several days, I reckon, in the last fortnight where I've had that. And not just because we did podcasts. On yeah. Them, but like, <laughs> yeah, probably similar. Yep. Yeah. And, and the last item, which is I've, I've dreamed about coronavirus. Yeah. I, 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 that's a great item because, like, mm. if someone is dreaming, if you're dreaming about something, like, that's if yeah. anytime a patient of mine 
talks about their dreams, I always ask about it like, yeah. and get them to elaborate. Because if, if you're dreaming about something, it means it's on your mind and frequently you don't even realize that yeah. that's the case. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've had one that yeah. I can remember, one okay. dream that yeah, I can no, remember. I've not dreamed about it. <clears throat> it was essentially turning, um, what is that movie? It was essentially Contagion, but... I oh, see. I've avoided COVID. watching that movie, but yeah. Well, people people keep on mentioning it, and and I have seen that movie, and so yeah, it see, was, I, as um, I have a hankering to watch Outbreak with uh, mm, Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, and, nice. And, and, oh. <laughs> anyway, not recommended. Not recommended. Self-flagellating kind of behaviour there. <laughs> Maybe we'll get School of Movies to um yeah. to do an episode on it. Yeah, yeah. So. So, yeah, this is the more cognitive aspects of it, right? A lot of this is obsessional things. Mm. And I'm glad you mentioned context because we often think about ourselves uh, and not consider, if we're not in those uh, situations, people who have to go and uh, I pass by a Dunkin' Donuts and you'll see a person having to serve people. You can only imagine the person has to do this to live and how much... These things that I'm talking about that I don't have to be exposed to, right? The luxury mm. of me. But that person, and they're in contact with people in their cars and doing things like you're saying. Uh, some people look protected. Some people are coughing. They don't care. Yeah. But the person still, the frontline workers, we call them here in the U.S., that deal with the everyday people. Think about how these things can be so weighing and pressing on the mind. Mm. And then they got to go home to their loved ones, elderly, uh, young all these people, and again, this is uh, trying to tap those type of uh, the more cognitive aspects. I, li- I really like this scale. I could sort of see how this is, if you were working clinically with someone, this would be a good good one to do repeatedly. Whereas I think the other one, the mental health screener, it's looking at all those really severe mm. kind of symptoms. Whereas I think this would be kind of interesting from a process right perspective session monitoring almost yeah yeah that kind of thing the the other thought i had with this one sherman was that and it ties into sort of a question we were going to ask you about which is that i think that people's anxiety is going to change as this progresses and so everyone is looking at the moment where everyone's sort of under lockdown right Mm. australia we're under lockdown from what i see Mm. in the united states you're under lockdown that's going to change now timeline on that is variable but at some point that's going to change. And I, so I have had an experience of being under lockdown at home and and I'd been a bit unwell, so I'd had some time off work and then I came back into the workplace and I thought my anxiety was all right and I got back into the workplace and I was suddenly around all these people Mm. and Mm -hmm. my anxiety went up. And then what I noticed is the more days in a row that I'm at work, that anxiety drops and then when I go back to work the next week, it goes back up again a little yeah, bit. After you've had a bit of space yep. from it. Yeah. Yep. And so I think there's a lot of people out there who will be at home thinking, yeah, no, I'm fine. Mm. And then they're going to get out into the world and this anxi- anxiety is going to peak for them. And then it's going to sort of fluctuate. Mm. Uh, yes. Yeah. I think it's going to be quite interesting. I think people are blissfully unaware of what's going to happen emotionally for mm. them. Yeah, and I think particularly there's been a few people talking here about because we have fewer cases about the possibility that restrictions could be lessened a bit and that then everything will open up a little bit more and then our cases will go up again and then we'll have to go back into lockdown. And I think that kind of, if it has that cyclical nature, that'll definitely have an impact as well. It'll be difficult for people to adjust to and probably yeah. see waves of it. Um, I'm certainly yes. seeing more presentations. I mean, I only, I work with kids and adolescents, but... 
my wait list has increased and my clients are more unwell. Have you seen more or not so much? Uh, not so much. Yeah. No. I mean, my, mine's, sort Yours of, is my, my, mine's very much sort of cancer treatment related. Yeah. So yeah. it's a little... It's a, a little and, different. Yeah. yeah so I, I think, again, thinking more broadly, okay, because I'm focusing on fear and anxiety. And we know that this living at home and all that opens up a whole bunch of different cans of worms mm. outside of fear and anxiety, as you're saying, like adjustment and things like that. But I anticipate that, yes, fear and anxiety is, is going to change. And if you think about, especially in other areas, that this is going to uh, affect, like our food chain here, a lot of people are afraid because of all the uh, uh, meat factories and things like that being shut down and mm. then people having limited resources and unemployment. So the infection itself is definitely going to be evolving in our attitudes about it. But again, I think the other secondary, if you want to call them, effects to the economy, to politics, mm. to everything. I'm a professor. I mean, one of my big stressors was the transition to online courses in less than a week. Mm. And there was an expectation at our university to make sure that, you know, we're, we're ready to run. Yeah. And uh, I'm not a tech guy. Yeah. And so this thing was killing me. To, uh, to spend hours and hours and hours of mistakes of trying to do what you're doing now and, you know, put it online and, and edit this and put our lectures online and our tests. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, a huge shift in huge shift in, in role and responsibility and stuff like that. I think yes. I've inadvertently become tech support for, for my team. I, I didn't mean oh. to, but it's I, I let slip a couple of things and and the, now I think the, I think I'm that person. Uh, the, go- <laughs> the golden rule, if you know anything about tech, is not to tell anybody yeah. that you know anything about tech in your workplace. Yeah, I slipped up. I was tired. I was stressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely tricky, and there's so many issues that keep on coming up week to week. And I think everybody's also far more tired with doing things online delivering lectures and things like that and and doing telehealth is certainly a lot more tiring than being in person so Mm, it's it's no wonder that we're all a bit predisposed to some of that anxiety before you add in the pandemic (laughs) (laughs) yeah so uh uh, any more thoughts before we go to things we came across? Uh, Any anything else you would like to tell people about the scale or any other final kind of ideas no, no. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's always important. Uh, and, and I'm definitely, you know, my, what I study. I, I'm not the bright side of life person. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Look, you're but talking I, to a um, child trauma psych and uh, a psych who works in oncology. It's, we get it. <laughs> I know. And I'm often surprised at my students when they're looking at me. I'm like, you signed up for death, dying and bereavement. I mean, <laughs> What did you think today's lecture was going to be on? (laughs) You know, but, you know, in all seriousness, though, you know, I think one of the positive things about that we could do in these moments. And I often tell uh, a lot of the people that lead different groups of people like uh, I have a martial arts instructor is that these are the times we can rise and be proactive and not slip into, you know, kind of despair. Mm. And, and you can feel really good about yourself in a time where there's a great need to help people in very different ways. Everyone has different skill sets. Mine happens to be 
chatting it up with you guys and, and, and doing research, but other people have other things they can offer. Hmm. Uh, and, and I think this is the time to do it and, and help people, you know, rise to this occasion. Nice. Um, I think that's a nice, nice note to end on. We yeah. might cut to the break yep. and we'll be back soon. You're in two shoes, bud. As it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena, the explanations become what we call laws instead of simple explanations. This is the break. Unfortunately, this time, Hunter's with me. I've had two goes at just going wild on my own. And now here he is, you know, cramping my style. Let's see. So if you've been listening to the COVID pods, Amy's had free reign in the break I've had bit. such a nice time. Yep. Yep. It's been, really, it's been really quiet. No one's laughed at me. No one's rolled their eyes at me and looked at me like I'm a child. I did like the way that your voice sounded in the last one. It was very, very prim, proper. I knew exactly what I wanted to ask for. <laughs> A little bit, a little bit sultry. Yeah, that's what I was going for. <laughs> Whereas, like when you were actually, when Amy and I are actually looking at each other, face to face, she just tries to like irritate me by not saying anything. Like, yeah, visit our website twoshringspod.com. Why would I do that? Because it's so much more fun to go off on a tangent and just say, <sighs> "Yep, there they go." <laughs> Eyeballs actually, roll back actually, into actually, the I head. Breathe <sighs> more heavily into the. Uh, it's just beautiful because it happens within you know, half a second and it's just, it's just so satisfying. I feel like I'm <laughs> suppressing it for about 0.49 of a second, I've got to say. So, and if you like this awkward banter that uh, Amy and I have. I'm talking about. Two shrinks we have chemistry. The newspaper said so. <laughs> two shrinks pod at gmail.com. If you want to read the newspaper article mm. where they said we had strong chemistry and also like good quality audio. Yeah. I was quite pleased about it because I do the editing and I'm frequently very anxious about how it sounds. Mm. Yes, there's a lot of reassurance that has to go on. Anyway. You, yeah, you do a good job. Uh, you should also visit our website, twostringspod.com. I said that already. We just like, you were just ignoring but, me. listen. Yes. <laughs> but you need to go to our COVID-specific page because oh. I've put a lot of time into it. <laughs> Collating resources. So it's twostringspod.com yep. forward slash coping dash with dash COVID. Or you can just go to the main page and, you know, click on shit. Yep. I've put up a new storybook on the kids section of that, by the way. It's so cute. Okay. Yes. Talk to me. It's called Bertrand the Board. And it's a storybook for children about dealing with boredom in COVID. Oh, great. And like it's got a therapeutic idea of how to brainstorm as a family, what things might be able to, you might be able to do to make Bernard a little, not Bernard, Bertrand, a little more happy and distant. Yeah. All jokes aside, do check out the website and uh, check out our Coping with COVID page. The reason we're doing this, these series of shows, not only because it interests us, but we do, we're actually kind of worried about people and mm. we thought the best way we could help as psychologists would be to... Talk about COVID, provide you some resources. Thank Absolutely. And as always, send us emails whenever you like. Ask us questions, suggest topics. Uh, we're probably going to do another movie, TV kind of podcast or something that's kind of light and fluffy. So if you have any psychological light and fluffy stuff in mind, send us an email. <laughs> You're looking at me like I'm an absolute nutcase. And I really regret using the phrase light and fluffy. <laughs> You'll listen to Shrink's podcast. So 
we're back from the break and Sherman is still with us. He's stuck around. And if you're not listening to this pod before, this is the part of the show that we just kind of take it a little bit easier. Hmm. Uh, normally we'd be drinking, but Sherman is in, in the morning. So we felt that it'd be rude to crack a beer at this if he's not having i mean i don't know maybe morning drinking is his thing i don't know I'm sure. yeah we, that should be your question so uh so uh, normally we talk about things we came across but because it's covid we thought we'd just sort of keep it covid related so i was gonna say what are the, what are the unusual things you've done in isolation amy hmm um, or did you want me to go first because i've got a good one so. okay yeah you go first <laughs> One of the things I've been doing is I've been home a lot and just trying to cook different things because I get a bit bored with all stuff. And so bought a sushi making <laughs> pack from the supermarket. Never made sushi before. Made sushi. Yeah. It was great. And, uh, and then I was like driving home and I'm like, you know what? I'm, you know, I'm going to stop in. I need to get some more sushi rice. Sure. And then the tight ass side of me <laughs> kicked in. I'm like, oh, I could buy five kilos of, of sushi rice. Yeah. Because, you know, that would be, you know, save a lot of, you know, save a lot of money and, and you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'd have it and wouldn't have to go out. It, that cost $48 Australian, <laughs> which and it's a lot, which is... So, ex- that'd be what, about 30 American? Oh, it was extremely expensive. And then I mentally drove home and I was like, realized it. I was like, I can't go back into the store because that would be too embarrassing. And then I was like <laughs> mentally working out how much sushi that would actually be. Yeah. And was it cheaper to buy Look, it <laughs> made by someone else? Or? At, at that point, I stopped thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Have you done anything unusual in isolation, Sherman? Oh, there's. It's it's not the kind of program I need to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> that bad, huh? <laughs> you're with two. Were you with two psychologists, Sherman? You could just relax. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, yeah. Well, no. We talk about food, and I'm on a pretty. I've been on a pretty good diet for the last two years. Hmm. Now we're in the lockdown. And I've been staring, you know, before this call, I was like, you know, maybe I need to drink something. And I usually have a little cocktail of uh, lemon juice and apple cider vinegar. You know, that's to start my day. But then I stared at that one lemon I've been staring at for the last couple of days and thinking about how I can subdivide this sucker because he's my last lemon. And I don't know <laughs> if we're going to get a lemon for another week or so because we only do a grocery store, store call-in. Uh, once a week, hmm. so it takes a couple days for them to process it, and then we'll pick it up. And so, uh, and to reduce exposure, I don't want to do too many of those things. But yes, that's the weird thing I was staring at, and I'm still thinking about <laughs> when, I, when I cut that lemon. What that's going to mean? Because he's the last lemon. Oh, is that man. is that around the craziness yeah. you want to do? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's that, unusual. That is. That is <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say that the, the one thing I am. Amazed about with COVID is that I, at my age, I've finally learned how to shop as an adult. Yeah. Sh- shop once a week. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. I've never done that before. No. Amy, I, I think, we're, we're, I think for me, it's, it's been um, organizational procrastination and doing things like I have been scanning the barcodes of all of my books into the Libib app all of the new books and so now they're all alphabetized and documented and then all of my books have been sorted onto a new bookshelf in color order and it's just it's been so satisfying but also has taken up so much time and caused so much chaos in my house it was just 
was marvellous. What is the benefit of having an electronic library of your books? Well, so <laughs> I like to go to – I go to bookshops a lot and I go this to op shops a, a lot answer, normally. It? Yes. But <laughs> what happens is that for books – because I buy books so frequently and often buy particular authors, then I f- read the blurb and I go, that sounds great. And then I can't remember whether I have bought that book and not read it <laughs> or – whether I don't have that book or yeah. whether I've got it from the library. So if I have the little thing, then I get it out and I check. So then I don't end up with, you know, six copies of Black Rock, for example, which has not <laughs> happened. <laughs> yeah, so it's quite handy. Yeah. And, and then it's also, wow. you know, you can read the blurbs on it. It's amazing. It's got a picture of the cover. <sighs> Satisfying. Mm, I think I live in a very different world to you. <laughs> you don't hoard books. <laughs> I, I am the granddaughter of a librarian, so I think I can blame blame her for, mm. for this obsession. It just remind me of my favourite question out of the MMPI too, which is, does the work of librarian appeal to you? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is there a strongly yes? I mean, I know it's only binary. Yeah. Anyway. Well, um, wow. <laughs> should, we leave it, should we leave it on that note there, yeah, Sherman? <laughs> I'll, I'll give you some medication for that. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, I need it. <laughs> so, um, Sherman, if people want to, if people want to find out more about you and your work, where should they go, and uh, how can they find you? Are you on Twitter or anything like that? I'm not. Mm. That's the thing. My my sister is telling me I'm so behind the times. Um, no, I wish I had I, I'd prepared myself for this uh, level of uh, interest, but usually no one cares. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> no. so they 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 find me when they need to, but. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm on Christopher Newport University, so mm-hmm. you can look at their website, uh, Sherman Lee. And uh, hopefully I'll have a couple of links and things like that up as uh, more interest uh, in what I do uh, increase. But, yeah, I wish I can give you one of those taglines that everyone else does, but I don't have any. No, that's fine. Uh, that works. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for talking to us. Um, it was great to hear hear more about it and have it have a long chat about all of the, you know, complexity around this kind of stuff. Is there anything you wanted to add, Hunter? No, no, stay tuned. We are planning on a couple more COVID pods and also we're probably going to do some non-COVID related stuff Mm. uh, just to change up the pace. Keep things light. So uh, if you like the show, don't forget to rate, review. If you got any questions for us, uh, twoshrinkspod at gmail.com. Thanks very much, Sherman, and we'll see you guys. Thank you. See you next time. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.